So tonight, I think we need to start by meeting the star of the show, if you will. So we're going to watch just a very short video, and I'm going to explain to you what we'll be seeing here. This is for, just by a raise of hands, I'm curious, raise your hand if you've actually ever seen a sage grouse in the wild. Wow, look at that. Pretty good crowd to have seen one. Okay, well, this is, this is a video of what the grouse is most known for. It comes from the Cornell Ornithology Lab. So what you've got there is the, the male sage grouse. This is the, this is the lecking season, right? And uh, you can have, and we're going to get some more detailed explanation from the experts here in a moment, but you hear that, that coffee percolator popping sound and like the zipping, like someone's scraping a nylon windbreaker or something. So that's the noise that this male sage grouse is making in order to attract the attention of the hens. Something interesting about the sage grouse is that only a few males on the lek, which is what this mating area is called, will end up getting most of the action. Uh, the hens prefer just a few very dominant males for reasons we're not entirely sure of. They'll start maybe just before dawn. This happens in the spring, just once a year, February to May, depending on where you're at. And uh, is one of the reasons why the sage grouse is so well-known because of this really ostentatious dance that it does. But the rest of the year, it's pretty. it actually can be kind of hard to find them, depending on where you're at. They kind of blend into the... Uh, they blend in. They blend in to the um, to the landscape. Um, so we are here tonight because by the end of this month, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service will decide whether or not the greater sage grouse warrants endangered species listing protection. Uh, and as you can see by this map, the stakes are really high because the protections would affect hundreds of thousands of acres, both public and private land, across eleven states, including Idaho. And we'll talk a little bit more about exactly how much of the uh, range has declined. But you can see here the number. Current population estimated to be between 200 and 500,000, once 16 million possibly estimated, roamed the western states. So that's what the stakes are tonight. And as we have this conversation with our panel of experts, you're welcome to join the conversation. We have Scott over here with a microphone that he will be... Uh, walking around the audience. So you are invited to join. We are recording this. We will likely broadcast it. So keep that in mind. Wait until the microphone gets to you before you make your comments so our listeners can hear you. And identify yourselves, if you would, please. Um, If you've got something to say or a question as we're going, feel free to raise your hand. I'll take note and we'll try to work you in as the evening progresses. Okay, with that said... Let's meet our folks who are here tonight, our panel of experts. Representative Merrill Beeler is here to my left. He's come all the way from Ledor to be with us tonight. He is a first-term member of the Idaho House. He's a state representative, a Republican. And he's also a cattle rancher, which is an important reason he's here tonight. He's a former school teacher. He is a co-founder of the Central Idaho Rangelands Network. And he's an advocate for sage-grouse conservation and other wildlife conservation. So he presents a very interesting mix of qualities and expertise. It's nice to have you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. It's good to be here. To his left, Tricia Craycroft is a state biologist for the Natural Resources Conservation Service of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. She's Idaho's state lead for the NRCS sage-grouse initiative, which we'll talk a lot more about tonight. It's spent... million since 2010 across 11 western states, primarily working with private landowners to improve their habitat for sage-grouse. Good to have you, Tricia. 
Great to be here. Thank you. Dustin Miller is next to her. He reports to Idaho Governor Butch Otter as head of the governor's Office of Species Conservation. This agency is charged with balancing recovery and conservation of Endangered Species Act listed species, balancing that with the economic vitality of the state. And so, as you can imagine, one of the office's largest priorities right now is implementing a conservation strategy to avoid the need for a listing of the sage grouse uh, as an endangered species. Thanks for being here, Justin. Thank you. And finally, Ann Moser uh, on the end there is a wildlife staff biologist in the Sage Grouse Program for the Idaho Department of Fish and Game, and she helps coordinate statewide sage grouse monitoring and conservation efforts, including working with the 11, I think, working groups across the state, which are really at the heart of Idaho's sage grouse conservation effort. Ann Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. To start things off, I'd love each of you to explain for me what you think is the most interesting thing about this bird, the sage chicken, as some folks call it. Either the most interesting thing or maybe a memorable encounter you've had. Representative Beeler, let's start with you. Wow. Well, uh, yeah, what's the most interesting thing about the sage grouse? Uh, You know, it doesn't fly very well. It's not really very fast, and it still persists. And so I think, you know, when we look... uh, historically over a long period of time there's been ups and downs in populations of sage grouse but they're still here they're still on the landscape they're still part of it so i think that's the most interesting thing for me thank you trisha Krakow. well of course the lucking mating ritual is fascinating in and of itself but probably more interesting to me is the ability of the sage grouse to rely almost exclusively on sagebrush during the winter months, and we all love the, t- the smell of sage breast, but I don't know if any of you have ever actually tasted it. It's just quite unpalatable. <laughs> so the bird has just this ability to break it down, excrete it, and live almost primarily exclusively on sagebrush. Dustin Miller. Yeah, I think uh, one of the most interesting things about uh, greater sage grouse is the uh, the, the uh, variance in the locations where it actually lecks and mates? Um, you know, in your in your lecking areas, you typically think you've got an open area within the sagebrush and you got adjacent uh, uh, nesting habitat. But we've seen in places, <clears throat> uh, for example, at uh, about uh, 7,500 feet in the Copper Basin, uh, birds lecking there in the snow in the springtime, um, all the way down to uh, uh, bull pastures and feedlots in uh, the west central part of the state, showing how it's, uh, these, these locations are highly variable, but these birds adapt to these different locations. So uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. Thank you. Ann Moser. Um, now I they've taken all the easy stuff. No, no. Um, <laughs> I guess I'll tell you what I love about sage-grouse and sage-grouse habitat. So as biologists and researchers, when we are studying sage-grouse, one of the things we do is we put radio collars on them, and we follow them with radio telemetry, so that way we can figure out what um, survival is, what their movements are, their nest success, things like that. So when we trap sage-grouse, we do it at night, and we go to places like Lex, where we know there's a concentration of birds, and we look for their eye shine with spotlights. And when you're out there in the middle of the night, it's 1 o'clock at night, and it is completely quiet. Occasionally you'll hear a coyote, but it's completely quiet, you cannot see a human light anywhere, and it's just you and the sage-grouse, maybe a coyote, maybe an antelope. And when you experience that, 
that's when you realize that sage grouse own that landscape. And I think that's pretty cool. And I think that's what we all want to protect and conserve. And let's stay with you for a moment. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the, the lifespan, the, the, the size, and kind of the, um, I guess, the biology of the sage grouse, the role of the males and the females. So you pretty much saw the role of the male. Once a year, <laughs> that that's was it. <laughs> Female does all the rest. Um, and you also saw the big size discrepancy between the males and the females. Males are about um, five and a half pounds. Females are about three. Um, you always hear it in the media compared to a chicken, but males are a lot bigger than your normal backyard chicken. They're pretty big birds. Um, lifespan is three to five years. I just um, heard about one of the birds that I radio collared um, in 2012 was relocated, and that bird then was at least five years old when he was observed this year. So, Pretty long lifespan for a bird. Yeah, for, for a game bird, yeah. Yeah. Which gives it the ability to, like Dustin was explaining, have a little bit of adaptability to uh, find a new lek? Or? Um, no, they actually don't have a big adaptability to find a new lek. Not given what Dustin said is correct, once they've found a place, they, they stick to that place. So if their lek area burns, they still come back. They come back the next year, and the males are still there, and they're still doing their thing, and... There's no nesting habitat any way around for the females, but they have this um, tradition to keep going back to the same place. Representative Beeler, I'm curious to know what, what you thought of, uh, what do people who've, who, who've grown up on the land and who live off of the land think about the, the sage grouse? Uh, sometimes I hear people talk about it as a it's a dumb chicken. It's not very smart, you know. It's, um, you know, what, what's what's your perspective? You know, I think anybody that's grown up on the land and had the land be a part of them uh, appreciates all the things that make up the landscape. And uh, I think, you know, we get just as excited when we see sage grouse fly and just soar and land and those kind of things. I can remember, uh, you know, it was. Uh, well, it was in November, and late November, and a snowstorm had come in, and the clouds were really low, and we went up to gather cattle off the range, and uh, I thought, man, we will not be able to see one cow. I don't know why we're even out here, but uh, as we got there, the clouds lifted just a little, and, uh, and the snow was maybe a foot deep, and as we started riding and gathering the cattle, then we would see the sage-grouse rise and just soar under those clouds and uh, so yeah you know those kind of things uh, kind of make it why we are on the landscape uh, you know the landscape is uh, a great part of who we are and the animals that occupy that landscape uh, provide meaning for us in our lives so I don't know if we see them as dumb birds they don't fly real fast but other than that <laughs> they have a tendency to get strung up on fences right and uh, uh, well, maybe, maybe not so much. You know, I, I've been out on the range a lot, and I have to tell you that we have actually fenced some of our range, our, our uh, fences that are next to where there are sage grouse uh, nesting and leks. Uh, we've made sure that there are those little reflectors on the top wire. But I have to tell you, I have not seen that many actually ever hit a fence. Hmm. But 
you know, I suspect it's possible. You've got really smart sage grouse on your land, Representative. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess so. It, it comes with the territory. <laughs> Train them well. <laughs> I want to go back to this slide. Um, looking at the habitat and the, the fence marking is one of okay. the things we'll talk about a little bit later that the NRCS has been funding through the mm-hmm. Sage Grouse Initiative. Tricia Craycroft, I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about the 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 habitat of, of the sage grouse. What makes an ideal habitat for the sage grouse? Because it's not just one kind of landscape, is it? No. So looking at the range map, it, it varies dramatically, kind of what Dustin was saying, across the species range, what is required for nesting or preferred in nesting in Montana isn't necessarily what's going to be preferred for nesting in Idaho. So it's important that we keep... Um, the habitat needs when we create these general guidelines, they are guidelines. They're, there's a lot of variability within what good nesting habitat is, what good wintering habitat is, what, you know, up in Washington, they lack on winter wheat grounds. We typically don't see that here in Idaho, but we do tend to see them lacking on highly disturbed sites, maybe old salt lick sites or highly impacted areas. Um, so typically they, they'll need, that's one type of habitat they'll need they for, need their, the for a successful lifespan is to yep. have a place where, t- typically a little bit le- like more flattened out, right? Maybe more of a meadow where, because the males are showing off, so they need to be seen. I mean, sure, that's the point. Those males are a couple mm-hmm. feet tall and they want to show off and puff their chest and be seen by as many females as possible. So typically they are kind of maybe rolling hills, flatter, bare landscapes. And then Typically, right adjacent to that area are the nesting sites, typically within three to five miles of those lecking grounds where the hens will nest if she's able to keep and hatch her nest, then the, she'll move them down to a early so, brood so the nesting site. area, Trisha Craycroft has a little bit more, uh, has more sage, sage brush so they can hide underneath it. Correct. Okay, so it's more densely... Um, more dense cover. Yep, we're looking for a little bit higher sagebrush canopy cover. We're looking for um, more bunch grasses, forbs, um, really a, a healthy sage step ecosystem. And a forb is? A forb is <laughs> a little, usually annual plant that produces lots of seeds. They're very palatable to the grouse. It's a little flowering weed kind of a thing. It's okay. A great way to describe them. So, they, so over the course of a sage grouse's existence, in a single year, they'll need a lecking area, a more flat area. They'll need a, a, a more densely covered sagebrush area to nest and hide from predators. Then they need a more open area with more of these little grasses and weeds and forbs that their chicks can can survive on and as they're growing. And then winter comes, and what do they need at that point? Well, so they, they kind of have two stages. They have an early brood rearing when the chicks are just born, and then they have a late brood rearing when the chicks are a little bit older, and they transition from that nesting typically down into the wet meadow mesic areas in kind of late summer, August, when the rest of the area is drying out. That's where they're going to find the green grass, the flowering forbs and insects. And then as we transition right now, they're starting to transition up into their wintering sites and that becomes really important because they survive solely on sagebrush, so the height of the sagebrush is important. We want to make sure that there's tall sagebrush that's exposed year-round so that they have the ability to feed and shelter. 
So, Dustin Miller, given then all of those different types of habitat that are required to keep a sage-grouse population healthy, and given that decline of that habitat is what is driving this population decline that we're seeing, you know, from 16 million potentially historically to now maybe as many as half a million, how does the state of Idaho create a plan that will mean that can sort of maintain all of that kind of habitat and ensure the success of this bird while also needing to do everything else we do with the land including grazing and mining and you know uh, uh, recreation right right well that's a good question we've you know the state of idaho has been involved in sage grouse conservation for for many decades uh in 2000 uh, 1997 a, uh, a state plan was created uh, to address some of the issues uh, for sage grouse, it was uh, modified in 2006. Um, but uh, due to a series of, uh, of litigation um, uh, and federal actions, and in litigation over those federal actions, uh, things kind of culminated in uh, in 2010 when the Fish and Wildlife Service said, you know, this species is warranted for listing across its range, but precluded because of other higher priorities. Um, largely uh, because of habitat fragmentation across the range in the eastern part due to oil and gas development and in the uh, Great Basin portion of the range, like Idaho, because of wildfire and invasive species. Uh, The Fish and Wildlife Service also said that uh, regulatory mechanisms, uh, enforceable actions via uh, plans, management plans, were not in place to ensure that those threats were adequately dealt with to protect the species and uh, allow it to persist into the future. So we addressed a lot of things in 2006 uh, with, the, uh, with the state uh, sage-grouse plan through the uh, advisory committee that was set up and the local working groups that, that Ann has been in the Department of Fish and Game been very involved with. Because of the regulatory mechanism piece and because of the uh, federal land component where 74% of the habitat in Idaho is managed by the federal government, we jumped in to address those regulatory mechanisms and those, those shortcomings identified in the 2010 finding on the federal lands through a governor sage-grouse task force that ultimately culminated into an alternative into the federal planning effort. It's, it's pretty you know, complex. The whole issue is complex, as everybody knows. Um, but uh, we were able to, to address a lot of those, those remaining threats on the federal land, again, in the Great Basin, uh, invasive exotic annual grasses like cheatgrass and wildfire were the two big threats that we addressed in the governor's plan, uh, and that's uh, worked its way into the uh, the federal EIS for uh, for management. So the threats you mentioned, cheatgrass and wildfire. What other threats, Ann Moser, are uh, causing a degradation of the sage-grouse habitat? Well, the other threats that Dustin also mentioned were infrastructure. Um, human development, things we, we put on the landscape in the sagebrush ecosystem all like accumulates and impacts sagebrush. So it's not always just one thing. It's accumulation of these things we were doing to the landscape. Is, is fragmentation that big of a problem, though? I mean, if, mm-hmm. as long as you're not like putting a road through a lek, does it really matter if there's a road between two leks? So fragmentation can matter in a couple ways. Um, fragmentation is... Um, one way to think of fragmentation effects is Wyoming. So Wyoming's pretty extensive sagebrush ecosystem that's been recently cut up by oil and gas development. And they have documented with uh, sage-grouse research, 
sage grouse with the radio telemetry collars, that um, fragmentation can affect their movements. Um, so not only, have you t not only does fragmentation remove habitat, so you've built a big road, you've built a big oil pad or whatever, so you've lost that habitat that was there, but can also affect the movements of the birds. Um, and sage grouse are very, I mentioned this earlier, they're very traditional. They, uh, Trisha talked about the different habitats. They are very traditional in how they move amongst those habitats. So one female, if she bred on this lek, she nests maybe a mile away, sometimes farther. They can nest up to seven miles away from the lek. She will take her brood to a wet meadow, and then, and then when winter comes, if her, hopefully her brood is still alive, then she'll take them to where they're going to spend the winter. And then usually the, um, the yearling females by then, she'll take them back to the lek. So she's kind of like introducing that tradition to, to them. So if that path that she always takes, and she'll do the same thing next year. Her nest might be 200 meters from where she nested the last year. Um, so if those paths are messed up, then that's fragmentation that could mess those paths up that could influence how they move amongst the landscape or increase their mortality rate, you know, because, get, being hit by cars oh, or, okay. thing, you know, or things or, like that. Or exposed to, if, if a for, wildfire, for example, mm -hmm. has, has come through an area where uh, a sage-grouse used to, is used to nesting, mm -hmm. she'll go back to that area anyway, even though, though there's no cover necessarily for her to hide or to nest under? Yeah. She'll just show up and then kind of try to do it anyway, just because that's what she's always done. So, sometimes the hens get a little smarter than the males, and the males will take a little longer to figure it out. <laughs> but yeah, pretty much. And just it's almost like then slowly the population just disintegrates. Just dwindles. Right, right. Representative Merrill Beeler, tell us about your experience trying to work on the land, run cattle on the land, but also not hurt the sage grouse how do those two things coexist uh you know that's a good question uh i think we need to maybe look back historically a little bit and every once in a while i try to find a kind of like a survey monument to kind of begin to look at and think about what things were like and so i have one of those a monument that i go to from time to time when i want to kind of look and think about the landscape and so it's up, on a range, it's up on a range, and it's this granite rock, and it's about maybe this tall, and it's polished just like the most polished piece of marble you could ever imagine in your life. And so then I sit there and I think, well, how did that granite rock get polished like that? And so the, the, my thought is, well, that's a buffalo rub. That's where buffalo were. How many buffalo, how many times did they have to go to that granite rock and stand and rub on it over how long a period of time to polish that rock until it's just like glass? And then I look on it also and I see the lichens that are beginning to come back onto that rock. And I know those lichens are at least 100, maybe 200 years old. So livestock on the landscape, when sage-grouse are on the landscape, have always been there. They've always been there. Uh, that's not different than they are today. And so I think it's like anything. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're 
given something, uh, I think you have a responsibility for good stewardship. And so uh, we do the very best we can. We move the cattle. We, we've created actually on our rangeland what is a two-year rest rotation on every piece of land. And so, you know, if you go up there this fall and you look across the rangeland, uh, the blue bunch wheatgrass is this tall. It's, it's a, I've actually measured some this year in the fall that's actually over 32 inches in height. And the sagebrush is there. You know, grazing and the ability to have sage grouse on the land are not necessarily antagonistic to each other. Uh, it's part of what has, had occurred in the past, and it's a part of what occurs now. The most important thing that I think is is uh, we have to look at, uh, the, when we talk about fragmentation of the landscape, uh, ranches are pretty much open spaces. They're still open. And these ranches are located exactly where the sage grouse need to go at different times in their life cycle and in their rhythm of life year to year. And so uh, I think it's just, it's just a matter of taking care of the land. So has your ranching operation then hit, um, taken a hit uh, at, at the altar of the sage-grouse on any level? Well, uh, not right now. Uh, there's great potential in the future depending on what happens. You know, there, there, there can be outcomes. And, uh, if so, there were a listing, you're saying that that would, that would change things well, for you? It depends on what happens, you know, with the listing. I think th- those are the unknown things that we don't know. Uh, I suspect a listing, uh, one of the things that I f- fear about that is it takes control away from uh, the state of Idaho. It takes control away from local people. It takes control away from those that are most closely related to it and probably understand it the best. And so, yeah, I, th- I think this is one of those things that uh, uh, I don't know what it'll be like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, what scares me the most is, is uh, maybe we're going to do something that in the end will be more detrimental than good when we look at the total landscape. You know, the bird is what's brought us here. It's sort of framing the picture that we're looking at and you have some real extreme uh, frame out here and some real extreme frame out here and above, but there's a lot of space in between. And it's the picture that's going to be uh, framed is the most important thing. And what is that picture going to look like? You know, we talk about the bird, but we also have to talk about the people on the landscape and the communities and all the other things that go with it. This is part of a bigger puzzle. And... uh, because it has the potential uh, to have such eff- effects, uh, this is one thing that we have to make sure we get right. We don't have the luxury of just messing around. Mm. Uh, we've got a question out here in the audience. Before we go there, though, Trisha, I'm curious, the, the National Resources Conservation Service, the Sage-Grouse Initiative, mm-hmm. that you've been funding to the tune of several hundred million dollars since 2010, uh, has been primarily focused on working with private landowners, ranchers like Representative Beeler, helping them to do stuff on their lands that will help the sage-grouse population. 
is what we just heard from Representative Beeler the the exception or the rule, would you say, among ranchers in the West or in Idaho in your experience? There are always exceptions to the rule, definitely, but I think majority of our producers throughout the West want to do what's right for the land, and they make their living on these rangelands and Sage-Grouse Initiative tagged it in the beginning. What's good for the grouse is good for the herd. They all need the same things, and when you can implement a solid grazing system, you're going to benefit your cattle. You're going to benefit all the sagebrush obligate species that we have out there. It's not just about the sage-grouse. There are 300-plus species that rely on this ecosystem. And that's really... I think at the heart of our producers in the West is nobody wants to do harm to anything. They want to do what's right by the land. And it's just a matter of maybe helping them figure out when they have grouse using their property, what flexibility they have within their system. It'd be great if we could work with their federal permits to have some grazing flexibilities you know, the, the more On the BLM flex- and Forest Service land. Right. The more flexibility the producers have within their system, the greater benefit to all the landscape. Because they're able to rotate their herd, like rotate, rest, change about. timing of use. Yep. Hmm. Let's go ahead to this question back here. And, uh, sir, if you'll introduce yourself before you launch off. My name's Chris. I'm a, <clears throat> a graduate student at the University of Idaho. Um, I. The, re- the, the representative mentioned bison and, and made sort of a, a vague comparison between bison and cattle. I'm wondering if um, either the representative or one of the other panelists can maybe elaborate on similarities and or differences in the way bison may have historically browsed or grazed the landscape versus how modern cow uh ranching is is grazing the land okay uh representative Beeler, do you want to start with that uh i mean how how similar do you think the 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 herds of large ungulates bison fit into that category roaming your land versus the way you're grazing your cattle today how does that compare okay i'll, I'll give you one comparison and then we'll talk a little bit about it uh you know one of the other things that, that i kind of tried to do is uh, kind of read and get uh, what you'd call first-hand information. And uh, so there's a, a book called uh, uh, Journal of a Trapper by Osborne Russell. And so I want to just kind of paint this picture for you. Uh, he's, I don't know if you guys know where Dubois, uh, Idaho is, uh, but anyway, he was up there, and whoever was the captain of the uh, trapping group sent him towards Fort Hall. And so he headed towards Fort Hall, and uh, he ran into the lava flows between Idaho Falls and uh, Fort Hall. I don't know why he didn't turn east and go to the Snake River. Maybe he didn't know it was there. I have no idea. But he turned and headed uh, back. He wanted to go back to Mud Lake. And so he started on his way back, and as he talked about that, uh, that journey back, he said, I had plenty of food, but being without water for 48 hours, food is not very appetizing. And so then he, he says he, his horse got a little lame, and he was leading it, and finally he just stops. 
And the next morning, he wakes up, and he looks off to the west, towards Birch Creek, and he sees some willows. He had headed towards uh, Mud Lake, but had missed it south and west. And so there he is, and he talks about going to the water. And he said, It only took me three hours to disperse the beasts to get to the water. And so my thought is this, you know, if you were without water for 48 hours, and you're on your horse, uh, what size a herd of buffalo do you think was there on that particular area? It was huge. Um, and, then, and then the story goes on, there's some other things. Actually, the Indians were, were uh, harvesting salmon in the Persimmerai, and they came over the hill, and they killed 1,000 buffalo. And I thought, ah, that cannot be. And then he talks about the, the number of people. There were 300 lodges with, three, or with five to six people per lodge. And so when I put that together, I think, you know, that's about right. That's probably what happened. And so, you know, uh, we actually have an allotment uh, right now, and right next to it is uh, a ranch that runs buffalo. I would really like to invite you to come and look on both sides of the fence. And I think most questions would be answered. They graze just as hard as any cattle could graze. Graze it just as tight as any cattle could graze. They do the same thing. And so it comes back to management. It's always going to come back to management on grazing. And uh, so... uh, I think you could do the same thing with cattle. If we just camped those cows and left them and left them, that side of the fence would look the same as the other side of the fence. And so I think uh, it just comes back to grazing. I don't think that there's that much difference between the two. Cattle will herd, buffalo will herd. You know, something that's, that surprised me, I'll admit, in the, in the reporting um, that I did for the recent series that aired here on KBSX about the sage-grouse was that when you look at the – I assumed that grazing was a large threat, one of the major threats to sage-grouse one of the reasons, major reasons why there was such a decline in habitat. And in fact, the Fish and Wildlife Service grazing is much, much further down the list, isn't it? So Dustin Miller, talk to us about the, uh, you mentioned wildfire and invasive grasses as sort of the two primary threats in a large portion of Idaho's sage-grouse habitat. Why are those two such a big deal? I mean, we saw the soda fire recently that cut into a large amount of sage-grouse habitat. Why is that? Why has that been such a problem for us? What's happened that has made wildfire such a problem? Well, <clears throat> you know, really the uh, exacerbation of an invasive, exotic annual grasses, cheatgrass. You know, that's um, that annual grass came over um, from kind of the Caspian Sea area, that uh, 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 Southwest Asia, Mediterranean type country, uh, back in the I think the mid 1800s. Um, well, it uh, started taking hold once it came over um, through uh, various mechanisms, through uh, sacks of grain, uh, in balance of ships. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, stories on how um, how cheatgrass uh, arrived in this on this continent, but uh, it uh, it started to get a toehold here in the uh, in the in the West, particularly in the Great Basin, and. Uh, you know, just the behavior of that, that species, that out, 
competes your your native perennial grasses. Um, really gets a, a head start in the fall. In the springtime, it's it's out competing uh, again your, your your perennial grasses. And is it, it cures, more flammable it than cure, the well, perennial grasses? Well, uh, the way you know it cures early, cures in the in the late spring. And you know by early midsummer, I mean it's it's ready to go. It's it's fully cured. Um, right when the kind peak of a, fire season yeah, hits, yeah, uh, tan color and it's it's highly flammable, and uh, it really uh, the the continuity of those of that particular species really helps to carry a fire, and so that's partially why you're seeing uh, these uh, these major rangeland fires over the last few decades. I mean. Back in the day, you know, a 20,000-acre, 25,000-acre wildfire on rangeland was was a big fire. Uh, Now, a 100,000-acre fire, 200,000. The Murphy Complex burned in 2007 um, was just over 600,000 acres. Um, It's tough for uh, the bird uh, in those areas to to, to bounce back after uh, major uh, disturbance events uh, like these major wildfires we've been having. So what's the plan then? I know Governor Otter has had you very involved in coming up with a plan to address this wildfire threat in order to avoid a listing. Yeah. I mean, what can be done? Well, it's a, uh, it's, it's a, it's a group effort. It's a multi-agency, multi-stakeholder effort uh, to try to curb the, fr- the, the trend uh, of this cycle. Um, you know, in the governor's plan, we are, the state pledges to get more aggressive uh, on a, uh, a, a fire prevention, a suppression, and a restoration uh, front. One of those actions that we have pushed forward through the planning efforts is the creation of these rangeland fire protection associations where you've had these landowners and ranchers in rural parts of the sage-grouse range, um, you know, for hundred. 150 years, um, but as things with federal regulations move forward uh, in the uh, in the later 1900s, and the uh, uh, the way that uh, the agencies approach wildland firefighting, having people on the fire line that were not trained, that were not agency people, and were not red carded, was a liability. So, through the creation of these range and fire protection associations, which were set up through the state legislature. We've been able to train uh, a number of additional wildland firefighters who are also ranchers in these rural parts of the sage-grouse range to play an active role on initial attack. So you've got extra bodies out there um, that have uh, uh, decreased the response time to a lot of these lightning strikes or other ignitions in, uh, in sage-grouse habitat. So that's, that's one thing. We've seen some, uh, some measurable, measurable results, positive results, because of those, uh, those actions. And you um, say one of the things, in addition to fighting wildfire, is to try and go in and aggressively reseed with native grasses Right, after. right. Restoration actions are, are key if we want to uh, actively, um, you know, restore these areas that were, especially our core habitat areas, uh, following a, a wildfire to... Uh, try to avoid the uh, invasion of these exotic annual grasses. Because in the absence of the native grasses, it, when a fire comes through, the first thing, it's it's a vacuum for the cheatgrass to come yeah. back into immediately yeah. if you don't yeah. take immediate yeah. action. Cheatgrass does very well in these uh, in these burned areas. Well, let me ask you this, Dustin Miller, then. Do we get to a situation where we're so concerned about our sage-grouse habitat that we're potentially putting human lives at risk? Uh, well, there's always that risk on the fire line, but that's uh, that risk is is managed appropriately by the agencies 
uh, BLM, the, the State Department of Lands, as well as these range and fire protection associations. They carry their own uh, liability insurance as well, and they, they follow the appropriate state and federal firefighting protocols. When it's not safe, uh, the line officer is going to instruct them to stand down. Um, so there always is risk when you have people out on the fire line, uh, of course. But uh, a lot of these folks, obviously, they care about the sage-grouse, and they want to protect sage-grouse habitat. But uh, many of them that are part of these RFPAs have a vest- vested interest uh, in the rangeland for other purposes, such as livestock grazing. Um, and so I think it, uh, the, 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 uh, the training protocols that these rangeland fire protection associations go through are key um, because they learn exactly what they need to do uh, on the fire line to ensure that they're providing adequate initial attack but being safe uh, in how they go about doing that. You've mentioned a couple of times um, the public lands, private land. I wanted to just show a slide here about how that breaks down in terms of sage-grass habitat. While we're looking at that, I might just mention that... um 98, 99% of these wildfires are contained within a reasonable time frame at a reasonable size. It's just that 1% or 2% that are getting away. And so when you look at the human risk element, um, we're doing a really good job. It's just those few that, that are getting out of hand. Yeah, and it, but then again, it only takes a few, right, right. When, it, when it comes to an important leck. Right, and that's <laughs> where an there's nesting. other... Um, projects in the work where fuel breaks are being installed. We're working with all land management agencies across the board trying to figure out ways to compartmentalize the landscape to help reduce when these do few fires get away from us. Um, right. we're, said- all on, we're all trying to fight that because it is probably the highest risk. The annual grasses and wildfire go hand in hand and it it's not just uh, cheatgrass, but Medusa head is becoming a huge problem, and, and Ventnana is not that far behind it. So um, we all know we need to get a handle on it. Um, we just don't have the technology to get us where we need to be. The, the, I should add that the, uh, the Secretary of the Interior has also made sage-grouse a major priority in the Great Basin when it comes to uh, fire suppression resources. Uh, we saw that with the soda complex burn. Um, while that fire still burned, uh, nearly 300,000 acres, they threw a ton of resources at that fire. I mean, I mean, you saw the planes fly in. You've heard about the number of, of uh, uh, firefighters they had on the fire line, the dozers, all the resources that they were able to get um, went to that fire. I mean, granted, we had a number of, I mean, this is a bad fire season. Um, but you just, you, you would think that that fire could have been a whole lot worse had those resources not been been allocated uh, to an area that is very important for sage grouse. Obviously, life and property are the priorities when it comes to fighting wild and fire, but it's helpful now that the Interior Secretary has made the, uh, the sage grouse a huge priority uh, uh, in the Great Basin when, when it comes to fighting wild and fires. Uh, you can see here on this pie chart, uh, I think, Dustin, you said here in, in Idaho, 70, more than 70% is uh, federally owned, federally managed land, right? So that would be BLM. The FS stands for Forest Service. This is range-wide, this chart you're seeing. Even across the range, all 11 states where sage-grouse are found, uh, nearly half is 
the BLM's responsibility. So that can include, which is where a lot of these fires are taking place and also where a lot of grazing is taking place through allotments. And then you have the portion that's private. It's a little bit less in Idaho that's private um, from that image. And Moser, from a biologist's perspective, what's all the fuss about? I mean, what's so ecologically important about the sage grouse? <laughs> well, it's it's not... It's not just the sage grouse, as Trisha said. I mean, there's a whole host of species that also use the sagebrush ecosystem. And, you know, sage grouse are sort of the poster child in a way. I mean, you know, they're, they're funky looking. They do funky things. Um, but there are, you know, sage thrashers, brewers, sparrows, sage sparrows. There's tons of other wildlife out there that are part of the whole, the whole ecosystem. I've heard biologists mention the word indicator species. Mm-hmm. What, what does that mean? I mean, typically what an indicator species is, it's kind of like the canary in the coal coal mine kind of thing. So something big and obvious, if that starts to go, then you know that other things are going wrong in the ecosystem. We've got a question back here on the back row. Let's wait for the microphone, sir. Please tell us who you are. uh, My name's Eric Jensen, and uh, I've heard the panelists talking about uh, receding after the fires, which is obviously a very important thing. And I've heard the term grasses come up. But it's my understanding that sage-grouse don't eat much in the way of grasses. So the grasses must be going back out there for the cows rather than the sage-grouse. Is that correct? Uh, Uh, Because because what they eat mostly in the way of plants is forbs as well Mm -hmm. as the sagebrush. And I haven't heard anything about putting forbs, which, by the way, are both annuals and perennials, are mm-hmm. basically what we call wildflowers. Mm-hmm. Anything that's not a grass that's herbaceous is a forb. Thank you. Thank you. A lot of actually, Trisha, let me you, let me let you take this first because a lot of the. And in fact, I'm going to advance the slide here and show yeah. um, what's been done on uh, on the sage grass initiative front, which includes you can see the the numbers there on the top, a total of 400 and. $24.5 million in investment sure. range-wide if you include both partner funding and the, the USDA funding. And then you can see there a list of the acres in Idaho that have been seeded and uh, ma- uh, rehabilitated from, from a grazing perspective and even mm-hmm. fence marking and so forth. You can peruse that. But tell us what kind of seeding you're funding sure. and, and what the goal is. There. Sure. So I guess when you look at a natural fire, when it creates a disturbance on the landscape, the first things that naturally come in are those forbs, those weedy forbs typically, and they they come in in big numbers initially, and then you start to see your grasses come in, and then they grow in number, and the last things that come in are that brush component. Now, when we talk about seeding after wildfires or seeding in any landscape, we're trying to get it back to that um, reference community, plant community that we're using as that benchmark. So what we do under the Sage Grouse Initiative is a little tricky because what we did is we conferenced with the U.S. Fish Wildlife Service. So we went through the Section 7 consultation process to work with private landowners on sage grouse issues, but we only consulted on 40 conservation practices tree shrub establishment, which is what we would do doing plugs of sagebrush, was not included in that. So we don't do actual plug plantings. We can include sagebrush seed in our mix, and we do to the greatest degree possible because we all know the sagebrush is the key component 
in sage-grouse habitat in the rangeland sage-step ecosystem. I can't give you exactly this specific on the seeds because it's quite site-specific and it depends on uh, your aspect, your elevation. Um, you know, sometimes producer preferences play into that. We really try to stick to native as much as possible, definitely bunch grasses, and really try to veer away from anything rhizominous because that is the chicks just can't move around in the, those real thick but if you stands. were if if you were truly focused only on not on not on cattle but on making the ideal place for the grouse and the other sagebrush obligate dependent species uh, would you put as much grass in there as you're doing and moser um, grass is important for nesting cover so that's part of the... So they don't eat it, but they, no. they nest under it? So they usually nest under a sage brush, and then native bunch grasses sort of surrounding it. So both of those things provide cover. Chicks, as they move from site to site, that, that's where they hunker down. That's where they hide in, the, in between the sage brush. Although it does sound kind of like it's been a good deal for you, Representative Beeler, that there's been all this money coming down from the sage grouse initiative, and those grasses are are food for your cattle, too. Well, I, you know, the anytime you begin to look at something like this, uh, there needs to be resources put in it. There's no question about that. Um, some places you'll do plantings, and some places you will not do plantings. And uh, in 2003, we had a... Uh, a, a fire event on our range, and it was both on uh, forest and BLM. Um, it burned about 14,000 acres, and most of that occurred in uh, one day. And uh, that took us off the landscape for two years. Uh, we did not do any uh, planting of uh, any grasses or any forbs or any sagebrush on our BLM allotments and uh, you know you go there today and that's been since 2003 uh, we have the sagebrush community back we have the blue bunch or the blue bunch wheatgrass we have the idle fescue and we do have uh, the forbs and, and uh, th that are necessary so it depends you know where you're at some places yeah that's going to be really important uh, it just depends on the intensity of the fire and those kinds of things, I think. You know, uh, we're expecting here in the next couple of weeks a decision from the Fish and Wildlife Service about whether or not to impose restrictions to treat the sage-grouse as an endangered species, uh, which would come with a whole new level of collaboration with the federal government before anything can be done on the land, essentially. Um, the Endangered Species Act is, exists to protect species. And if we're concerned about the sage grouse, why would there be, Dustin, this is a question for you, I guess, why would there be such a concerted effort on the part of so many groups to avoid that listing, including, uh, you know, gr groups, your, your offices for species conservation? Right. Why would you not want the ultimate in, in protection for a species, the endangered species listing? <clears throat> well, you know, with an Endangered Species Act listing, essentially the federal government comes in and lists the species. Uh, therefore, they're calling the shots. So the state of Idaho, the State Department of Fish and Game, uh, is charged with preserve, protecting, preserving, and perpetuating all fish and wildlife. 
and all fish and wildlife in Idaho are the property of the state of Idaho and the people of Idaho. So when you list a species, you lose big time in terms of state sovereignty. So the Fish and Wildlife Service comes in and says, okay, it's listed now. Now we've got to start recovery planning. Well, if you look at what we've been doing over the last five years, we had the warranted but precluded finding in 2010, and that kicked off a major um, uh, planning effort across all land ownerships, uh, federal, state, and private. Um, significant conservation actions uh, have been uh, pushed forward through this, this huge planning effort. Um, you've got people involved. Uh, you know, we had uh, the, the Governor Sage-Grouse Task Force, for example. We had a diverse group of stakeholders that were represented on there. Everything from the livestock interests, energy interests, the conservation and sportsman community were all a part of that, working towards a common goal of figuring out what we needed to do to conserve this species and maintain state sovereignty and preclude a listing. Um, my fear is is that if, if the Fish and Wildlife Service, by the end of this month, says it's threatened or it's endangered, greater sage-grouse, across the range, or however they would do that, <clears throat> it's going to be worse for the bird. The bird is going to be a whole lot worse off under a listed scenario. How? Because we've lost. We've lost. We're not going to get the engagement of people to participate in any more of these major landscape-level conservation efforts if at the end of the day, it's never going to be good enough. You agree with that, Representative Beeler, that uh, people who are willing to participate today, grazing organizations, ranchers, would just go off in their corners and stop stop being helpful? I mean, they wouldn't have any choice. You'd have to comply. You'd have to protect the sage-grouse on your land. Well, I, I kind of tend to agree with what Justin talked about. You know, uh, I, I'm going to just switch the conversation just a little, and I want to talk about... Uh, uh, salmon, and uh, you know when that became listed as an endangered species, and uh, there were a lot of things that happened during that time. And uh, I kind of remember one of the bumper stickers that said, "You know, uh, can the salmon?" And I suspect if we looked at that same thing today, we might see fry the chicken, but I'm not sure. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, you think it would just make people mad? Well, and- you know, if you've worked really, really hard uh, to achieve something and you've worked really, really hard to make sure that the habitat is correct and right and functioning and uh, it's not good enough at that time, what do you do? You know, what do you do? What more can you do? Dustin Miller, who, though, is is the state in a position to enforce strongly once the heat is off once the fish and wildlife service if they say you know what we don't need to list it things are going okay i mean who's to say that we don't all of a sudden go back 15 years and it's you know it's anything goes on the on the habitat we've come too far we're not going to take our foot off the gas by any means i mean we've got the best experts at the department of fish and game that have been involved in sage grouse conservation and management for decades and so if the federal government comes in and says it's listed, apparently the folks in D.C. are telling us under that scenario that they know better, they know what's best for the bird as opposed to our local experts. So why would we not want to try to come together uh, in, in, a, in, in a collaborative fashion to do what's right for the bird, to balance out a conservation strategy uh, with the needs of this state and the economic 
you know, viability of the state. Mm-hmm. You know, we can do that. We can have both, and we're well underway in our planning efforts to do that. Um, I think a listing would, would greatly set us back, and it would uh, essentially work counter to the intent of the Endangered Species Act. And as you know, with the Endangered Species Act and with the listing, that carries a huge regulatory hammer. So consultation over every activity on federal land or on private land where there is a federal nexus from a permitting standpoint um, or a funding standpoint would have to go through lengthy Section 7 consultation. Uh, And and Trisha talked a little bit about consultation. Um, I don't see how the agencies can handle the magnitude of the workload that would come with having to consult over everything, every single grazing permit, every single authorization on federal land, again, or on non-federal land where a federal nexus exists. That it's not going to happen. That may be one reason why Secretary Interior Secretary Sally Jewell is saying very publicly as recently as yesterday, I really hope we can get to a not warranted decision uh, based on this collaborative effort. Let's bring a, an additional voice. Actually, um, let's bring a new voice in over here from the audience, and then we'll come back over here to the... So one of the things I uh, teach here at the university and have been working with uh, people who've been involved in saving the bird who maintain that if we list this, if the grouse gets listed, that it means the end of the Endangered Species Act as we know it. So kind of piggybacking on what we've been talking about, what, what do they mean by that, that this is the end of the Endangered Species Act? What do you think, Dustin? Well... Um, <laughs> Does it mean legal challenges that well, sort of certainly drive a nail be. into the heart? Certainly there will be legal challenges. There could be efforts uh, in Congress to, um, the, to, to try to overturn uh, a listing decision. Um, the Endangered Species Act, um, you know, in, in that sense, will have failed us um, because we are addressing the threats. We've been working very closely with the Department of the Interior, the Fish and Wildlife Service, who will be making the final decision um, the end of this month, um, and uh, we feel confident uh, that's, that, we're, that we're there. We can get to a not warranted. Granted, we still got issues with uh, some of the, uh, the last-minute top-down language in some of these land use, federal land-use plans, um, but, but still, under a listed scenario, you look at the level of collaboration, you look at the effort that has gone into this, uh, to, to, to conserve the species, to deal with the threats, to deal with the regulatory mechanism shortcomings. Um, and if, if they list, we don't know what the bar is. I mean, the bar is unattainable. It's too high. Um, so I feel that uh, under a listed scenario, everybody loses. In this instance, everybody loses. Um, and, there's and, the, and the Endangered and Species Act, again, you, to, to, to hit right on, your, on that question, uh, the ESA, in my opinion, would work counter to its original intent to conserve species and recover them to the point where the uh, protections of the act are, are no longer necessary. Meaning so, that, it could, that it could so bog down the activity on the land that even efforts to improve it. How do we recover species if what we're doing now, if they list, if that's not good enough? I'm curious, just uh, before we go, we've got about 10 minutes, folks, left. So if you've got a question you've been sitting on, raise your hand and we'll try to get to as many as possible. But just quickly, Ann Moser, I'm I'm curious Mm -hmm. to know how your work, how it's been been your job, your Mm -hmm. office's job to this point Mm -hmm. to manage and and, and protect the sage-grouse population. What happens if a listing comes along? I will be honest with you, I have no idea. (laughs) 
I really don't know how it will change. You've been tracking and monitoring, and presumably that would require federal approval as mm -hmm. well. I mean, I would hope that um, the federal government will still use the state to some level as far as maintaining the monitoring that we currently do, um, providing that input, but it's kind of a black hole, honestly. We're not, we're not sure. Do you think that the Fish and Game Department here in Idaho has the has the expertise needed to, to effectively manage the sage-grouse population? I think we can demonstrate that we have. And, not, and it's not just fish and game. I think the um, important thing to know about sage-grouse is the cooperative efforts that have been going across agencies. You know, it's not just fish and game, you know, working in a vacuum. It's not just BLM working in a vacuum. I mean, we're, we're working together. For example, the soda fire. Um, we have numerous agencies that are working together to try to fix that landscape after the fire and hopefully make it better than it was before the fire. Um, people are talking more than they used to. Um, when I first started my job, I didn't have a rancher as a friend. Now I can say that I do because I work with them and I can, and I can have a conversation with them. So I think that's the important thing and I, you know, I would hope that that's what we maintain. Let's take a question here. Please uh, introduce yourself for us. Uh, Rob Spall, Concerned Citizen. Um, the nature of the Endangered Species Act is designed to determine whether a species is biologically endangered or not. It has nothing to do with the politics, excuse me, the politics of the ramifications of that decision. I guess I would question how you can say that it will impair the progress of conservation about that species when most species that have been listed under the Endangered Species Act have had success stories since they've been put on that list and have improved their conservation status. Well, I would... Dustin. Well, and, of course, I'm well aware of the uh, best available science driving the Endangered Species Act and the biology uh, driving the Endangered Species Act. But, you know, to back up, when we've had the best experts as a part of our task force helping to develop our actions to conserve this species, and we're receiving positive feedback from our Fish and Wildlife Service on those major elements of our conservation strategy, our conservation areas, our zones, our uh, conservation objectives, that's got to mean something, that we are on the right track using the best available science to drive our conservation strategy. But we're on this trajectory here where we're about to call this a success story. But if we don't, if we, if we, if we don't achieve an, a not warranted decision, can you really tell me that the state of Idaho, that this huge collaborative, that all these partners that have worked so hard to implement these conservation actions and prevent a listing, you think they're going to all come together and say, okay, well, let's try this again on the next species? Uh, one thing because I, you're going to be hard-pressed to get a lot of people to participate in that, a lot of people that have vested interest in this sage-grouse effort. Something can, that's been impressed to me in this yeah. argument is that, and, and we'll, uh, let's, I think we've got a number of comments along this topic here, so we'll move uh, over to wherever the microphone is. Um, one thing that I learned in the reporting of this process uh, of, on this issue is that 
we really are in uncharted territory when it comes to the scale of an impact that this endangered species listing would have. No other decision that anyone who knew anything could tell me had happened. Nothing had ever come close to the to touching 11 states and however many hundreds of thousands of acres. And sort of the broad scale of that would be a level of management that we just have not ever seen before. Usually it's a couple, maybe it's one state, maybe it's a couple of counties, you know, but to have something that broad, I think, is, again, one of the reasons why Secretary Jewell is saying this is, you know, we're charting a new course toward collaboration and conservation, and we'd really like well, to see it And succeed. just to, to elaborate further, you know, I mean, you might have some groups that want to try some stuff, but you got 11 states involved on sage-grouse, and to try to do a landscape conservation approach to prevent a listing, and it didn't work the first time, I just don't know. I'm just at a loss as to how we'd put something like that together again. Let's take another comment or question. My name is Gillian Wigglesworth, and this question is kind of for everyone on the panel, and with collaboration among various agencies or interested parties, whether it's managing your own private ranch for the sage-grouse or uh, the whole state, the game part, how did you individually or collectively come up with thresholds that your management would move towards? So was it a collaborative effort? Like, So does the senator and um, the sage grouse initiative have the same idea of a threshold we are here to increase or our goal is to increase maintain or we're okay with this amount of decrease and so i'm curious if there's some communication that's going on between all these different parties and how that communication worked and if you can see that where there is a gap between your thresholds and what a listing would provide. Uh, who, who would like to take that initially? Re- Representative Thieler, yes. You know, yeah, I would like to kind of speak to that just a little bit. Uh, on our ranch, um, when there was an endangered species listed, which was the Chinook salmon, and uh, there were a lot of different things that we could have done. But what we did is we thought, well, the very best thing to do is we're going to open our ranch up to be looked at by everyone that wants to come and take a look at it. And so we had every type of agency. We had uh, Fish and Game, uh, Forest Service, BLM, uh, you know, just tons and tons of people that would come. And we would sit down and we would talk and we would look at things and we'd say, what are the best actions? What can we do to make things better? And I think that's the collaborative approach that we need. It it has to be uh, between all, all interested parties, whoever they may be. And uh, if you come together, the idea is not to work towards no, but to work towards yes. What are the things that we can do on the landscape that benefits the landscape as a whole? And everybody has to be vested in it. Uh, Trisha, would you comment on uh, what you know? How you decided as the Sage Grass sure. Initiative, what you were going to encourage private landowners to work toward? Is it based on on habitat, on how much brush you have, or is it based on how many grouse you have on the land? Sure. So, going back to what Dustin alluded to earlier, there's been sage grouse working groups since the '90s, maybe even before then. So, this is not a new thing for Idaho. Um, we use the best available research, which. Every state uses their 
uh, fish and game experts because they are tasked with managing that species. And then we work with private landowners who choose to voluntarily work with us on meeting those habitat goals and objectives for the life species that the grouse may have the potential to be there or do be, are there. You know, you're dealing with a species that covers a vast amount of acres. So are you going to manage every single acre for early brood-rearing habitat? No, because not every acre is brood-rearing habitat, right? So it's a matter of you have to know where you're at in the landscape, where the species occurs in the landscape, and we're still getting research out every day about what we're doing and the implications it has. So it's not this bar that you can set and it stays because we're learning so much still. I think uh, I've heard, heard it said that it's one of the most studied game birds out there, the sage grouse. We have time for just two more questions. We're going to go right here. Thank you. Hi. So I appreciate the, the senators or the, the congressmen's uh, discussion there about the, about the Chinook salmon and how there was consultation after a listing and you ended up with success stories about maintaining salmon. I think we need to get away from the, the rhetoric a little bit and, and not get to these points where if the bird is listed, we'll never be able to work again because we have plenty of examples where species have been recovered after they were listed. And, and to say that people will walk away, even for such a large landscape with 11 states and multiple federal agencies, that people will walk away is equivalent to saying that you wake up at night and you find your house on fire. So you call the fire department, and by the time they get there, your house is burned down. So you're going to blame the fire department, you're going to blame the landowner, and no one's ever going to build a house there again. It, do- it doesn't add up, okay? The way that we do these things is through collaborative conservation, and the way... Right, and, and, and we may not get there right now. And if it turns out to be listed, then we may get there in 10 or 15 years. As Trish said, right, the local working groups have been working on it since the 1990s. Don't forget. So think about this. Between the, uh, when, when the Europeans got to the West and now, 31 out of every 32 sage grouse on the range are gone. Look around the room here and ask 31 people out of every 32 to walk out of the room and see what, dif- how, what difference this room would look like now from when it looked like then. Reversing that trend is going to take a lot of work, and it may take federal regulation. It may not, but it may. And to say that you're going to walk away if, you get, if there's a regulation that comes into effect, I think is short-sighted. It's going to Thank be you, harder sir. to put something together. What was your name, please, sir? Uh, my name is Sean Finn, and I'm president of the local chapter of Audubon. Of the what? Audubon. 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 Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's take one more, and then I'm going to give everyone a chance to say a few words here to close up our conversation. Please introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Yana. Um, I kind of get the feeling that our, is success being measured mostly in the idea of the amount of collaboration and effort that is being fronted by the people who are participating in that collaboration in, in the conservation, or are there actual numbers that reflect some kind of population rebound that also tells us about success. That's a great place to kind of end. So let's start with you, Ann Moser. Tell us, tell us what we're seeing in the sage-grouse population today. So sage-grouse populations in Idaho certainly historically have had declines. You know, a lot of species have had declines. We've had declines. Um, but since really about the mid-90s, um, we the mid '90s was sort of the low point in sage grouse populations range wide. Um, we've increased and have been relatively stable since the mid '90s. Um, having said that, there's a lot of things that affect sage grouse populations and sage grouse numbers 
besides the things we're talking about here. So annual drought is a perfect example of some of the fluctuations that we see in sage-grouse populations aren't necessarily due to a wildfire or um, you know, a power line, transmission line, or things like that. It's due to natural variation in our weather, and drought is a big one. And we've had a lot of drought years the last few years. Um, this year we had a good, we had some good uh, years, and we're start. We've seen a pretty good increase range wine and sage grouse this past year. So uh, that would, I guess, explain then, Ann Moser, why so much conversation about sage grouse has gone on about habitat and how can we mm-hmm. make the best environment for the sage grouse? Because whatever improvement you've seen in the last couple of years is not enough to say it's working. It, it's, you have to look at a long term, the cycles yes. go in five or longer uh, years. Yeah, and, and the habitat responds slowly. So the, the improvements that we made last year or five years ago or 10 years ago may not be realized completely for another 30 years. So there's a lot that we still need to learn about those interactions. And our benefits. Dustin Miller, I'd love for your final comments to focus, if they could, on um, the tr- amount of trust, I guess, that's going to have to be required for the Fish and Wildlife Service to say, yeah, Idaho, we think you can do this without us forcing you. Well, I think, we, I think we've established that um, just through the efforts we put forward on our conservation uh, planning. Um, you know, the, the, this whole effort, and I'm, you know, starting at the, the 2010 finding and everybody kind of kicking gear, into gear to do good things, we've been in close collaboration with the Fish and Wildlife Service, with BLM, Forest Service, all the relevant state agencies, our partners, uh, the Idaho Conservation League, the Cattle Association, the Nature Conservancy. We built this thing pretty solidly through the spirit of collaboration. Um, you know, and... Again, I go back to the mission of the Department of the Fish and Game. They are charged with managing this species. We've got the experts here in the state that know what's best for the bird. Um, and, and so, I, you know, I, I just, just with our past experience at the state dealing with the Endangered Species Act, you know, we put forth this effort. We're doing our best we can to avoid listing. And if they list it, I just fear that we're going to be into another issue where you know, like wolves. Look how long that took. We met our recovery standards, and look how long that took to delist. Yellowstone grizzly bears. We've surpassed our recovery goals, and we're fighting like crazy for management jurisdiction over that species. So I think the best thing for wildlife, and especially for a landscape species like sage grouse, is to keep people engaged and try to cross the finish line together and avoid a listing. Trish Craycroft, um, just to finish up for you, what would happen, regardless of a listing, does the sage-grouse initiative continue, and in what way? It will. In Idaho, sage-grouse is going to be a species of concern, regardless of if we have a listing or not. And sage-grouse initiative is committed to continue working with private landowners on doing the best conservation on the crown. I think another $200 million committed through 2018 or something in the new budget. Representative Beeler, I'll give you the last word. Anything you'd like these folks to understand about the sage-grouse and about private landowners? Well, well, the last word? Well, except for me. (laughs) I get the last word. Uh, You know, I I think the thing that has brought us together is the interest in the sage-grouse. And as I said earlier before, that's sort of the frame. 
but I think if we really want to make a significant difference uh, westwide, is uh, we have to take a really, really close look at the things we can do. And uh, uh, when when I got ready to take over the ranch, uh, my father said, do you have one question? I said, yeah, how do you pull a calf? Right. And uh, he said, well, you know what I do? He says, I just find something that moves. I move that. I find something else that moves. And I move that. And generally, we end up with a calf. And so when I look about uh, the, the landscape that we have, let's take a look at the things that we can agree on and the things that we can do. Let's take a look at the juniper encroachment into the sagebrush steppe. Let's take a look at the conifer encroachment into the sagebrush steppe. Let's take a look at the conifer encroachment into our aspen groves. I think we can all agree that there's a part that we can move. As we begin to change things, little by little, we get the results that we want. When we started with the salmon that were listed as endangered in, two th- or in 1995, they said, well, you can do all the things you want in the stream, but it's too late for the salmon. We fast forward to 2014. We had the largest return of salmon to the Lemhi River in 40 years, more than were there before the dams were built. If we do good things, we'll get good results, and that requires everybody working together. The collaborative approach works. Arguing and not getting along does not work. Let's have a hand for our guests tonight. We've been joined by Representative Merrill Beeler, State Representative Trisha Craycroft from the Natural, Na, uh, Natural Resources Conservation Service, the Sagegrass Initiative, Dustin Miller from the Governor's Office of Species Conservation, and Ann Moser of the Department of Fish and Game here in Idaho. If you'd like to listen back, more coverage on our website, boisestatepublicradio.org. We had a five-part series that aired just last week. A lot more information there, and you can stay tuned to KBSX 91.5 in the coming weeks as this decision comes down from the Fish and Wildlife Service. Thanks so much for being here tonight.